Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we get to answer your Bible questions. If you have a question for us, we'd love you to email it to us. Address is lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. Ask the easy questions, I will answer them. Ask me a difficult question. That's why I have Wes Peppers here. Wes Peppers, great to see you. Thank you, Pastor John. Good to be here always. Thanks for being here to take the tough questions. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. We'll do our best. Here's one from Dawn that I know you'll like. She asks, is the beast out of the sea the Antichrist? And then the beast out of the earth, the government. This is Revelation chapter 13. Is the beast out of the sea the Antichrist? Uh, Saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns on its horns, ten crowns on its Heads the names of blasphemy, that one. Is that the Antichrist? Well, I think you're on the right track, Don. And when you look at all the characteristics of that beast coming up out of the sea, it does point to the Antichrist. Many of those match the same characteristics from Daniel chapter 7. And if you study that, the little horn power there, and you find that those are the same entity. And so a beast, according to prophecy, is a nation or an entity or some kind of political or religious institution And when you look at all the identifying points, it seems to point very clearly points to the Vatican or the Roman Catholic Church. And that's what we find in Revelation chapter 13, the first beast. There are a lot of Protestant reformers that also believe this, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, John Wesley, and there was a number of others that held that view consistently in Protestantism for hundreds of years. And many have kind of strayed away from that. But the historicist understanding of mm. prophecy still points us to that same answer. That's correct. They were historicists. That's that right. is, they saw the fulfillment of prophecy, maybe some taking place today, maybe some having taken place way in the past, but perhaps even uh, 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 being fulfilled throughout the course of history. So the other, the other schools of prophecy, prophetic interpretation would say it all happened in the past, unlikely. It's all going to happen in the future quite unlikely. Mm -hmm. Historicism says this has happened over a period of time and may even be still fulfilling. So that interpretation was pretty solidly held by a lot of of people for a lot of years. The problem with the dispensationalist views and the futuristic views is that it leaves huge gaps of time in history. And they say that, oh, God never speaks to these times. And and especially the last 2,000 years, many people think that the Bible is silent on that. That's right. But the book of Revelation and the historicist understanding clearly points us that God speaks to every age in history through Bible prophecy. Now, would you say the second beast is the government? Is is, is that, would, would you say that? It's definitely a political power. There we go. You have the first beast rising up out of the sea. And, and of course, all of these words are symbolic. The book of Revelation speaks oftentimes in prophetic symbols. And you look in other passages of Scripture to identify that. When you look at the sea, Revelation 17 indicates it's a very populated area. So a, a religious power rising up out of a populated The second beast rises up out of the earth, which is a very unpopulated area, which is the opposite of the sea. 
When you look at those identifying points, it seems pretty clear that it's speaking to the United States and Bible prophecy. Now, we have full programs on It Is Written TV that go through that in detail, so we encourage you to go there. That's the short answer. And the climax of this chapter is that these two powers, as time progresses to a close, will seek to unite themselves and enforce false worship on the world. Mm -hmm. That'd be very, very influential. That's right. Okay, next question is from Dan. Dan says, can you explain the Battle of Armageddon? Well, sure. Uh, Armageddon comes in the context of the seven last plagues. It's found in the midst of the sixth plague, or the sixth plague. He gathered them into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. It starts by saying the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, the water thereof was dried up, and so on. Now, much of what you read in Revelation and in the context of the seven last plagues is symbolic. I don't think you should say every last thing, uh, but much of what you read is symbolic. What you're looking at here is either a literal battle or it's a symbolic battle. How should we see this? Well, when you look at the whole context, it seems pretty clear that it is symbolic. Yes. Very clear, actually. So what's a symbolic war? What do you mean? Uh, Gather them to a place called, Mm -hmm. in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. What's happening there? Yeah, that that word Armageddon uh, comes from Har Megiddo, which means a, a valley. It was a valley. And really, it's a battle. The battle is over the mind. It's over the heart. The valley where people are making their decisions either for God or against God. And, you know, we see from prophecy it's going to get pretty intense at the end of time. That doesn't mean we need to be fearful. We need to be hopeful because Jesus is on our side. But, friends, it's it's identifying the separation of those who have chosen for God and those who have chosen against him. And we want to make sure that we're on the right side. And so the greatest battle ever fought is not one on a battlefield. It's not one at the end of time in the Middle East somewhere, as many theologians say. It's the battle that goes on between your ears, the battle that goes on in your heart. And God is seeking everything he can to win you. The devil's seeking everything he can to pull you away from him. The choice is ours. And that's really what that ultimate battle is for humanity, yes. those choosing for or against. Yes, yes, yes. This is the, 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 the final battle for the souls, right. the eternal destinies of men and women. Right. We see in, in this same plague, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, beast, and false prophet. They are the spirits of devils working miracles which go to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. There will be colossal deceptions of a spiritualistic nature that are that are foisted upon the earth in the end of time. Here is where the devil really plays his trump cards. He's seeking to deceive everyone he can, everyone if possible. Thank God it isn't possible because Jesus has your heart and he will keep you from being deceived. I like this question. It's from Jen. How can you forgive others, family members to be specific, when you cannot forget what they have said and or done to you? Well, first thing is let's look at what Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty six. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, you're not forgiven because you forgive, but you're forgiven as you forgive. You can forgive without forgetting. 
Of course you can. I mean, what did you ever forgive that you forgot? Oh, certainly somebody bumped you in line and it was it was didn't mean anything. You said, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, no worries. That's just out of your mind. Uh, you forget that. But somebody totals your car or injures you or says something awful about you, you're not going to forget that. You shouldn't forget that. I mean, if you're walking up the street and your neighbor's dog bites you, you don't want to forget that. If you do, you're going to get bitten every day. You're going to be filled with puncture holes, puncture wounds. You don't want that. So how can you forgive others when you cannot forget, forget what they've said or done? You just make a decision. You know, Wes, forgiveness isn't always easy. Mm-hmm. And forgiveness doesn't always feel great. And forgiveness, you might not even feel like you've forgiven. There might still be some real turmoil in your life. Some drunk driver, we heard that terrible story yesterday. Yes. A drunk driver, I don't know how it happened, but drove in the direction of a couple of kids. The mother, for some reason, tried to shield the kids. Oh, not for some reason. Tried to shield the kids, but she got in between them and the car. She died. Mm-hmm. And the forgive? father was watching. Was watching. Was watching. How do you forgive? Now, these things have happened, and people do forgive. I spoke to a woman. Uh, this was a quite high-profile case. We were going to get her on a program, but she died spoke to this woman whose parents were murdered by a real trashy person. And I'm saying that for a reason. She said, my mother taught me not to hate. She asked to see the man. She went back there to his cell and said, I forgive you. I want you to not forgive you. He didn't trust her. Why would you forgive me? When he, when he, when he got around to have conversing with her, he said, why would you forgive me? After what I've done, he'd murdered the parents, took an old truck and like 50 bucks. It was a senseless, dumb thing that he'd done. Turned out he had had a rotten upbringing. Doesn't make what he did right, but she could understand him a little better. He'd had a rotten, rotten upbringing. She forgave him. They became friends. He became a Christian believer. And though he was executed with her present, He was executed having given his life to Jesus and having pleaded with God for forgiveness. How did she feel? When she said, I forgive you, did suddenly she felt like she wanted to have the guy over for Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, I bet she felt all kinds of conflict. Decision, Jen, sorry, forgiveness, Jen, is a decision you make. Don't wait on your feelings. They'll come along or they won't, but you make the decision, irrespective of what people have done or said. You know, forgiveness, um, There, it's very clear that we as human beings don't have the ability to muster that up ourselves. Correct. A, a true choice to forgive someone, especially that's done a horrendous thing, really is an act of God working in your heart and working in your life. And so, number one, you pray that God will open your eyes and open your heart to forgive that person. You have to have that. You have to have the grace of God to do that. Secondly, Forgiveness doesn't mean trust. You know, if someone has been caught stealing from the offering plate at church for the last 10 years every week, and they get caught and they say, you know what, I'm really sorry, the church can forgive them, but they're not going to ask them to take up the offering again. You know, so, so that doesn't mean we have to trust them. 
we can still have. Now, God could put it in your heart to trust them. Maybe they've made a genuine change. But every individual has to work that out. But forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not something I work myself up to. It's a gift from God. And if you go to God, I believe he'll give that to you. One thing that always helps me in forgiveness is I think no one's ever done something to me that's any worse than I've ever done to God. Uh, true. And so we've sinned against God, and yet he finds it in his heart to forgiveness because he's love, he's mercy, he's compassion. He can put that same love in your heart to forgive that person. And so uh, let's remember that. doesn't mean they have to be your best friend, but you can forgive them. That parable, right? The guy squandered his master's goods. He begged. The master said, I forgive you. Mm -hmm. He had someone working for him or somebody who who, who had spent up much, 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 much less. Wouldn't forgive. We've been forgiven by God for nailing his son to a cross. We got to forgive others. That's right. Might not feel good, but it is the right thing to do, and it is good. Okay, we're not going to have the time to answer this before the break, but let's look at the question. Because I bet you many, if not everybody, can relate to this in some way. It comes from Sandy. I'm a Christian, but I struggle with swearing when I'm upset or frustrated. I pray about it, but I still say things that I shouldn't say. Is using foul language evidence that a person is not saved? Great question. We will answer it in just a moment. I'm John Bradshaw with me, Wes Peppers. More Line Upon Line brought to you by It Is Written, straight ahead. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Every Word is a one-minute Bible-based daily devotional presented by Pastor John Bradshaw and designed especially for busy people like you. Look for Every Word on selected networks or watch it online every day on our website, itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Line Up Online, brought to you by It Is Written. A moment ago, we left you hanging with a question about uh, an individual. Sandy spoke of struggling with swearing when frustrated or upset. So the question is, is using foul language evidence that a person is not saved? That's an interesting question. Where do we begin? Well, I think it could be evidence that they're not saved, but I think it could be evidence that they're new and they're learning and they're growing and God hasn't opened their heart to that quite yet. And, uh, you know, I've met people that, come up to me and they talk about Jesus and then they start dropping all kinds of curse words and bombs in different contexts. And I'm thinking, wow, this person has some understanding to do. But I think of a text that for me is really powerful. It's Colossians chapter 3. And, uh, you know, Sandy, if, if you're struggling with this, you can know that you're not alone and that God does have a solution for you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting on the right hand of God, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth, for you died 
and your life is hidden in Christ with God. And so what you want to think about is that you want to keep looking to Jesus every day, praying the prayer, God, cleanse my mind, cleanse my tongue, cleanse my heart. And that may that cleansing begins the moment you pray, but the full fruit of that may not happen right away. It may happen over time. Now, if you look down, um, there's a, another verse that's very applicable here, verse 8. This is after we've put on Christ. We've set our mind on things above. Then he says, But now you yourselves are to put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. There it is. There we go. So I'm not only choosing to put Christ in my heart and to set my mind on things above, but I also make a decision to say, I do not want to say those things anymore. I'm choosing not to say them. Now, in a moment, I may lose my hold on Christ, and they may blurt out, God doesn't give up on us, but it's a growing experience. I remember when I was a Christian, when you were uh, or a when Christian? I was not a Christian. Oh. I am a Christian by oh. the grace of God. Right. Still yeah, today. Worried, yeah. But uh, when I was not a Christian, I used to curse in my sleep something horrendous. And my mother would note that. She said, you would scream out in the middle of the night, curse words and and all these things. And when I accepted the Lord, that changed. Mm. She said, I've never heard it again. My wife hasn't heard that. So God does work you know, in your mind, but it's a growth. It's different for every person. But know that when you choose Christ every day, he's going to help you out of that thing. I would say memorize Bible mm-hmm. verses, particularly those that speak to purity of speech. Blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, Paul wrote about sound speech, which cannot be condemned, and so forth. Get the Word of God and get the Word of God and get the Word of God. And Sandy, I would say that you're convicted because you have given your heart to Jesus. You have been saved, but you're growing. You're growing. We said that could be a sign that you're not saved, but we would like to think it's probably a sign that you're growing. And that's a good thing. You're convicted. You keep going to God. You tell God, you've got a work to do in my life, Lord. Galatians 2 verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ lives in me. Appeal every day that Jesus would live his life in you. You'll see great things happening. Okay, what's our next question? Our next question is uh, a a pretty good one, actually. I I appreciate it. It comes from Kelly. Where in the Bible are we told to go to church on the Sabbath? Oh, that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Where in the Bible? Well, the Bible was really clear in the beginning that God set apart the Sabbath for a holy use. In Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says God blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. Blessed, rested, sanctified. In Exodus chapter 20, we are told, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, you are saying to me, okay, I knew that already, but I didn't ask that. I said, where does it say we should go to church? Well, in Luke chapter 4, the Bible says, as it was Jesus' custom, Luke 4, 16, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up for to read. You read all the way through the Bible. It was the, the custom of God's people to worship on the seventh day Sabbath. And then from, uh, where were we, Luke, you go over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, which says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
So the Sabbath was the holy day. It was the day that Jesus worshipped on in the book of Acts. You see uh, New Testament Christians gathered together on that day. You don't find a verse that says, thou shalt go to church on Saturday. But you find lots and lots and lots of evidence, of course. The seven-day Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It's the holy day. It's the worship day also. I'd also say that numerous times throughout Scripture, God talks about the Sabbath, that it's a holy convocation. Yes, that's correct. Which is a, which literally means a coming together of his people. So they were coming together. And can you celebrate the Sabbath on your own? Sure you can, but it's much better when you do it with God's people. And sure. that's the way that God designed it to be. And you celebrate too many Sabbaths by yourself, and it gets very lonely. Yep. And it gets very hard to do that, and you start to lose your way. Coming together with God's people gives you accountability. It gives you inspiration. Hearing the testimonies of other people, studying the Bible together, praying together. It's just a wonderful experience. And really, why wouldn't you want to do it? It's an awesome thing. Sure. Dale asks, what's the difference between being caught up, raptured, and the rapture? What's the difference between being caught up and the rapture? Okay, because we cannot read your mind, we're we're going to assume a couple of things about your question. One, as you were saying, what's the difference between taken up to heaven, between being taken up to heaven and the common teaching of the rapture? Okay, Jesus said, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is coming back and when he does, his people are going up. Now, for some odd reason, it is believed by many that when Jesus takes the redeemed to heaven, It's going to happen secretly. Um, There was a small empire built on this idea. Many books were written and movies were made. The idea that the bus driver is raptured and the poor passengers on the bus are left sitting on the side of the road. Or you're sitting around the, the dining room table and mom and grandpa were raptured and dad and grandma and the kids were left to be uh, to go through whatever's going to happen here on the earth. That scenario is not in the Bible. It's simply not there. Now, the Bible says the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. This is in 1 Thessalonians 4. With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the resurrection. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's being caught up. When Jesus comes back, we are caught up. Gravity no longer keeps us anchored on the ground. We're caught up. We're taken to heaven. That's what happens at the second coming. The idea of a secret rapture where some are taken and just a pile of clothes are left maybe, and it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, and it's and it's kind of gathered from various sections of the Bible where people try to hodgepodge something together to yep. make a scenario that just isn't there when you look at those verses separately. What is secret is the timing of the Lord. And you know, numerous places in, in Peter and in Matthew chapter 24, uh, it is said, the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. So every time that Jesus or other Bible authors refer to a thief or a secret, it's referring to the timing, not in the, ma- not in the manner in which Jesus will come. Jesus is very clear about that. He'll come with a trumpet, with, uh, with power and great glory, with all the angels of heaven, and the dead in Christ will, will rise. There's no secret about it. The Bible is clear. The event of the second coming is very powerful, very glorious, seen by all. Revelation 1, 7, every eye will see him. Yes. The timing of Christ's coming is, is the secret. That's what we're not sure about. No man knows the day or the hour. 
coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when the thief's going to come. If you do, you're ready for him. And the reason God doesn't tell us when he's coming is because people would wait to the last minute. It's just not healthy for us to know that. Mm, Yeah, good. Henry asks this question. I feel I missed an opportunity to witness to my landlord. I may not have that same opportunity again. I feel bad about that. How do you know when to act on an opportunity to share your faith or when to let the opportunity go by due to circumstances? That's a good question, Wes. That's a great question. What do we do with a question like that? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would do if I miss that opportunity is I would pray that I have another one. And even as soon as possible, whenever their heart is open. And what do you do? Um, how do you know? Well, many times that God will prompt you. He'll, he'll impress upon you. You should say something here. You should say something there. I think in many cases, any opportunity, any time is a good time. Sometimes people will ask you a question or they'll say, what do you think about this? Or they're having some trouble or some issue in their life that opens their heart in a way that may not normally be opened with. And so uh, look for those kind of opportunities. Um, you know, when you've done good to your neighbor and they respond to you positively, it's a good opportunity. Now, you don't want to beat people over the head with it. You don't want to just go out and be obnoxious. But at the same time, when an opportunity is there, you want to take advantage of it. If you miss that opportunity, and I have missed some. I know Pastor John has missed some. Mm-hmm. We've all missed some. And you look back and you say, man, I should have said something. You know, we learn from those experiences, and we don't want to beat ourselves up. We want to say, Lord, I want to be ready next time. Help me be ready. So those are a few tips. You may have some things to add. No, I think you've covered it nicely. If you feel like you missed an opportunity, you're going to pray, Lord, bring it around again. Bring Bring it it around again. Bring it around again. What I'm really encouraged about is that we're hearing from somebody who says, I want a witness. That's right. That's really good. That's right. And so you keep on in that direction. You keep praying. God will certainly guide you, give you more opportunities. We've got time for one last question. It's from Tim. In Job 34 and verse 12, it says, Surely God will not do wickedly. Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I make peace and create evil. Wait a minute. Does God create evil? Uh, Tim asks, how is this not a contradiction? This is a very popular argument for atheists. Hmm. They'll ask the Christian, does God create evil? Well, no, of course he doesn't. Well, then what about this verse right here? I've seen the videos, and you've seen them on there, and sometimes those Christians don't know how to answer that, and they stumble. But the reality is that God did not create evil. He created a creation that chose evil. Yes. That's the answer. And so, um, you know, God's not saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm responsible for the bad stuff. I'm responsible for the devil. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in that which he created, evil came out of. Now, does that mean that God didn't create it perfectly? No, he did. Of course he did. The Bible says that, and God is perfect. But, again, it comes back to free will choice, that humans have chosen that. You know, in in Genesis, God also says, I regret that I made mankind. Sure. Well, does he really regret making humanity? Of course not. He loves us, but he regretted the evil that we led ourselves to. Mm. God is not responsible for that. We are responsible for that. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people say, well, why doesn't God stop hunger on the earth? Why doesn't he stop hunger? Well, he provided enough food for all, but we have to choose how to be stewards of that. Mm -hmm. Hey, great questions. Thanks to you for submitting your questions. Email them to us at the address you see on your screen. We'd love to receive them. 
We'll be back again, and we hope that you will be too. With West Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw. This has been Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. <laughs>